Crabs and Scribblers. Welcome back to the Nib section, the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. This episode, we are going to do a deep dive into Estabrooks, uh, the American pen company, and also their parent company, which is Kenro Industries. So I have with me here two of our regular hosts. Uh, Tav, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. And also on the Zoom with us is Sharon. How are you, Sharon? Hello, a little bit less enthusiastic than Tav, but good to see you guys. <laughs> oh, gosh, sorry. Oh, I'm having a great weekend. How about you guys? After our episode in Faber-Castell, which is a long-term fave of both Sharon's and I um, from two weeks ago, this week we're going into a pen brand that personally I'm not very much familiar with at all, whether in its original incarnation or either of its revivals in the last uh, decade or so and that brand is Estabrooks. Tav is here to provide context because he's written both with vintage and with the modern Estabrooks now. Before we get into that let's go through what we're writing with today. Sharon let's start with you. So I'm writing with um, the Estabrook Esty in the sparkle tanzanite finish um, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail. Uh, I will say this pen is an absolute stunner to look at. It is, it is very much my cup of tea. Um, the sparkly resin, which is apparently made with real diamond dust, is a real treat to look at. Under low light, it's quite, it's not subtle, but it's not over the top. Um, but under sunlight, it really, really sparkles. And I've got it inked with Waterman Florida Blue, or uh, what's it called now? No, no longer called Florida. Pacific Blue? Havana. Or is it? Ha- no, no, no. It's Havana. Serenity. It's Havana Brown. So it's, sorry, it's uh, Waterman ha- Serenity yeah. Blue. And how about you, Tav? What are you writing with today? Well, I would love to be saying that I'm writing with my Estabrook JR. However, that's not actually what I've been writing with. Uh, what I have been writing with is my, my Twisby Iris. I just received it the other day. Um, because Twisby, the company, I, I, I bought it direct from them. Mm. They use this is the FedEx. this is the controversial VAC seven hundred, right? I didn't actually know there was controversy around it. I just okay. I saw it and I was like, that's really tacky. I have to have it. <laughs> you know, like oh, it's it's like aggressively tacky, but I love it. It is so lovely. It has this gorgeous rainbow matte clip, and it's such a small detail. I just love it. Mm. Um, it's big though, so it's not for everyone. You I, like, think, uh, like a large, I think that's the part that's pen. controversial. That's why it doesn't work. Oh, with a lot I, of thought people. You meant, I yeah. thought you meant the the actual color was controversial. Okay, cool. Um, well, yeah, yes, it is. It is a big pen. It's a big, heavy pen, mm. uh, and I'm actually not a big, heavy pen kind of guy. But to be honest, I, I just I saw the color and I'm like, I have to have that. It is just so like out there. I'm waiting for them to introduce this pen in the 580. Like this color in the 580, and I think I will cave in and buy one of them. But uh, I mean, there's other things I really like about it too. Like when you screw the cap on, the nib lines up perfectly with a clip. And being that it's a demonstrator, I'd be like, uh, if it was even slightly like out of alignment with the clip, I'd be I'd be like sweating. Uh, it, it's inked with um, Tatcha Ao, I think it's pronounced. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, but it's spelled A O. Um, which is just a plain blue ink of Tatcha, and it is gorgeous. I love it. It reminds me a lot of Waterman Serenity Blue, but it's a little bit quicker drying, 
a little bit freer flowing and it has a lot more sheen, like a gorgeous, subtle red sheen. So that's what I'm riding with. I'm riding with the Estabrook Camden composition in the colour Back to School Black. It's the one with the sort of marbly black and white uh, finish on the cap and the body. Yeah, the flex. Well, if you've ever seen a composition notebook, it looks exactly like that. It's actually a very cool look. And the Camden is inked with, I went through the cartridge that was supplied with, and currently it's inked now with Karandash Blue Knight, which I believe is the current uh, version. No, it was the original dark blue, which has been discontinued and is now replaced with magnetic blue because it looks very similar to magnetic blue from Karandash. So the story with Estabrook, well, Tav, maybe you can give us a rundown of what the story with Estabrook is. Well, I'm afraid I don't know off by heart when it was founded, but it has been going strong for over 100 years. It was actually so it's known by a lot of calligraphers as a fantastic nib company for dip pens. A lot of professional calligraphers, even to this day, seek out Estabrook vintage uh, dip pen nibs because, and, and I, I can attest to that, having found a couple in a thrift shop once, they are fantastic. They they just don't compare to any other brand of, of nib. They also made fountain pens. And they, I don't, like, in, from my perspective, they seem like sort of the Lamy of the pen, of, of the vintage pen world, like of the, of the pen world of the day. Mm-hmm. They produced inexpensive, uh, colourful plastic pens with, uh, with easily interchangeable nibs. Uh, these were screw-in nib units similar to what you see on a Pelican. However, these ones came in every possible nib size you can imagine there was you know there were they had numbers they, they had four digit numbers denoting which uh which nib they were and you can find databases online of these hundreds of different nib sizes uh you know you could get uh, untipped ones you could get tipped ones many of them were very cheap and they were designed to to sort of wear out and you buy another one for a couple of dollars and you'd use that for a few months and that would wear out and then you buy another one. You know, you just keep a whole bunch of them in your desk. And when your pen ran out, you'd unscrew it. Like when, you, when your nib started getting too scratchy, maybe the tipping had worn off, you would unscrew it, screw in a new nib, nib unit, and off you go. They had, you know, slight flexible nibs. They weren't calligraphic flex nibs, mm-hmm. but they were, you know, soft. I would, I would say they're very similar to like the Pilot soft nibs. They had, you know, what they called the relief nibs, which were oblique nibs, oblique italics. And occasionally, using different brand names, they would also produce different pens. Uh, I have another pen that's called the Relief Pen, I believe, and it's uh, this gorgeous, colourful celluloid. Um, I've never seen it anywhere else. I really like it. And it's got this gigantic oblique double broad nib, hence why it's probably called the Relief Pen. So, yeah, they, they made a wide variety of pens in all manner of different colours, uh, but their flagship models were the J and the JL, the J being sort of a, a pocket-sized pen and the JL being more of a, a lo- well, basically the same diameter, just longer. So it was a long version of the J. Yeah, and these came in pretty much every single potential colour you can imagine. So Estabrook, I think they went out of business ooh, quite a while back. Mm. Um, I don't have the exact dates with me, but they were revived in the 21st century by an American gentleman and 
the first attempt at revival was, shall we say, quite controversial and not very well received within the collector's market, or at least on Fountain Pen Network, as far as I could tell. I wasn't very involved in the community at that period, and certainly not the American community, but I, I noticed that was there was quite a lot of heated discussion. And um, searching online, I found a couple of commentaries from both Le Reyes and also bloggers and commentators. Basically, not bashing, but certainly quite critical of the mis- the perceived missteps that were made in the first attempt to revive Estabrook. There was obviously not a very strong attempt to connect the original brand identity of Estabrook with the modern incarnation. When we were contacted by Ryan, Ryan, who is from Kenro Industries, who's the current holder of the brand of the Estabrooks and also the company that currently now designs and is responsible for manufacturing Estabrooks. We were quite interested to find out what's going on with Estabrook um, because I think, Tav, you were saying that very recently we were hearing quite a lot of good feedback about Estabrook now, good feedback as opposed to what they were getting back in 2015, I believe, thereabouts. So uh, we had a interview with Ryan a couple of weeks ago to talk about Kenro and talk about how they came to acquire the brand of Estabrook and what their thought process was and what their plans were with the brand now that they have it and where they were placing the modern Estabrook within both the general pen user market and then also within the niche collector enthusiast market for fountain pens as well. We'll go to that interview now. You'll hear Tab and I talking with Ryan. Let's just get straight into it. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's like a casual conversation, like, right. So this yeah. is kind of more or less just good. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much. That's kind um, of how I, how, how I roll for the most I, mean, I was, I was hoping for a bit more of an interrogation, but. You want um, like, uh, uh, <laughs> Diana, talk. Nice to have. <laughs> I, I can do interrogation mode if you like. Um, Ooh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> What what we normally do to kick off the conversation and to kick off a podcast is we ask everybody, what mm-hmm. are we writing with today? So Ryan, what are you writing with today? Can I, what I have inked up at the moment or maybe just what am I writing with exactly today? What are you writing with exactly today? Or what are you willing to show us that you're writing with today? Okay. If I would be, I guess, remiss to not talk about uh, Estabrook, right? So I have this uh, limited edition um, Sparkle pen that we did on our oversized Estabrook SD. That's that's what I've been writing with today. Um, this was actually a collaboration we did with a US-based material maker. It's like, a, it's not an acrylic, it's it's an aluminite. And he actually puts bits of diamond dust in it. His name is Tim McKenzie. This is a diamond path stuff, isn't it? It is, yeah, exactly. Um, I love so that this stuff, stuff is a lot of like the micro pen makers in the States, and there's really a ton of them. I, I, I don't know what the environment is, you know, truthfully in Australia, but in in America, we have, you know, huge brands, we have medium-sized brands, and then we have micro brands. And some of the micro brands are really starting to catch up insofar as volume with the medium-sized brands. I mean, I'm sure you guys know Franklin Christoph. They're they're doing a phenomenal job, really. I mean, I think uh, I'm sure they're reaching your neck of the woods. I'm sure a lot of your enthusiasts are buying Franklin Christoph pens. that's kind of always been 
you know, our philosophy with Estabrook is really micro thinking to like a macro scale in a way. So that was a long-winded answer, but that's what I'm writing with. Very nice. <laughs> can we see it? Sure. Absolutely. It might be tough to really get it. Oh, I don't okay. know if you can see the sparkle. Yeah. Um, but there's like little bits of diamond in here. Um, we we had we did three different iterations. Uh, one of them was uh, what we called Montana Sapphire, which had like sparkle to the maximum. And that's the one that is completely sold out already. So th that one, if you see pictures online or Instagram or something, it's uh, it's completely sold out. So I had to lose that one. <laughs> mm. Well, Tav, how about you? What are you writing with? Oh, I was just going to say, like, I, I actually really like diamond cast resins. I think it's um, it's pretty cool. Uh, it looks, it's that beautiful kind of pearlescence to it. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, uh, it, at some point I'll probably end up getting myself a, a diamond cast pen of some round or another, but I'm writing with a ST Dupont um, Olympio large or extra large, I think it's called, in tortoiseshell, yeah, tortoiseshell lacquer um, with a medium nib, and it's 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 inked up with a, sort of a mix that I've I've mixed up myself of, of two different sailor inks, um, Nioi Sumire, I think that's uh, pardon my awful pronunciation of it, but, um, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, Yomogi, one of their new ones, and so it's, it's got this nice little teal, teal sort of color to it that's slightly reminiscent, reminiscent of Yamadori. Because I'm running a bit low on that one, so I'm writing with the now discontinued, the recently discontinued oh. Sailor Mil Colore in the blue. Um, it's got a hard, fine medium nib and MF. And it's inked with Sailor Seiboku. I don't know why they discontinued these. Maybe because they're more expensive to produce with the different coloured um, sections on the body. But they priced it accordingly. And uh, my understanding is that they were pretty popular, although quite difficult to get outside of the outside of Japan. But I really love this pen. I think it's so much more interesting than just their plain black and gold. And um, the nib, like most sailors, is excellent. So yeah. that's what we're writing oh, yeah. with. Very cool. And we'll try to pretend that we're all actually writing with a fountain pen when I'm actually um, brandishing this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> making my notes. No, oh, I've been I've been using my my Dupont to to write notes for the interview anyway. So oh, okay, I've nice. Plenty of use out of mine. <laughs> well, let's get into this uh, the interrogation section. <laughs> okay, let's yeah. go. <laughs> all right, Ryan, talk a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do at Kenro. Okay. And um, how did you get into this this strange community? Uh, were you a pen fan before? Honestly, not at all. Um, I guess I, I'd have to start from the very beginning where um, I was uh, at a college, a, uh, a subprime mortgage underwriter, um, and, and that was for two or three years. And during that time, I guess this was around 2006, 2007, the world was getting ready to collapse from what was going on in the United States with the subprime mortgage industry. Um, at that time, I just started um, going for my master's degree in finance, and I kind of took this local marketing firm on as an internship in a way, um, and, and didn't really think it would be a long-term thing, and that was Kenro Industries. Um, I knew nothing about Pence at that moment, and really the way that the company was structured was a lot of the attention and focus was, was on a sister company that we actually had, which did, you know, B2B products for, uh, let's say, corporate industry, mm -hmm. where 
you would you would maybe make gifts for jackets for you know right. Wells Fargo or or some other big bank or Chase. Um, and the idea was you worked really hard in the pen part, and maybe you could move up into the uh, into the corporate industry. And I've been with the company now about fourteen years. So I, I think it's safe to say I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I've fallen in love with the writing community. And the comp- the company has kind of completely inverted where all of the attention is really on our writing department. Um, and that's been the real core focus of our company. So th- that's essentially how I started. When I did start, I mean, we, we've been a distributor of fine writing instruments for a long time. My, my boss, Joel Blumberg, uh, the founder of the company, started, I think, about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the, co- the company is relatively small where we have seven people at the moment and all of us have pretty much been there long term. Our controller retired this year. She was with my boss at a previous business. So she worked with him for 37 years. Wow. Um, besides that, we have uh, Brian Halser, uh, whose Instagram handle is uh, New York Pen Guy. Maybe some of you guys follow him. He's like uh, my, you know, part of the core of people that really design and do everything together. Um, so his He's been with the company, I think, about 25 years. Um, we have two other girls that have been with the company about 20 years. I've been there 13, 14 years. Um, we have Carrie Yeager, uh, who is the uh, man who started Fountain Pen Day. Uh, he's been with us about just five years. And another associate, Neil Lipper, who's been there about five years. So really, you know, there's not a lot of turnover. We're, we're like a family in a way. Yeah. You guys are based in, in New York? Long Island. In Long yep. Island. Okay. And do you find that New York is like its own sort of micro community, micro ecosphere when it comes to the market for pens, for corporate gifts, for those mm-hmm. sorts of et cetera, accessories, as you say, um, the stuff that Kenro deals with? Like, it, do you treat New York differently to the rest of the country? When I when I started, it was it was very different. When I started, there was probably ten proper pen shops in New York. Now we're down to just one. Fountain Pen Hospital is really the only pen shop. We, we've lost Arthur Brown. We've lost June. I mean, there was a couple other smaller guys. But Barney's? Those were, was that in New York? Barney's is in Washington, D.C. Okay. Yep. Um, so th- when I started, I would think it was very much like that. But now I think you find that each proper pen shop throughout the states develops their own little bubble or community around them. Um, you know, Drom Ghouls in Houston has a very specific way that they do things. I mean, their their mannerisms are really walk in, try a pen. It doesn't matter. You know, it's uh, if you want to try a $10,000 pen, ink it up, try it, see what it's like. And then they just leave it on the table and they're a very trusting store. Um, you know, Bittner in, in uh, Carmel, California is probably one of the most beautiful shops in the country. And it's very, you know, pens or jewelry. You know, everybody has their kind of uh, forte about them. Um, Washington DC has Farney's. They have the DC Metro pen community, which is a huge community that they have, you know, enthusiasts that'll show up for any pen show you do there. So I think each pen shop really has their own kind of customers and feeling and community and club even. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a regional microculture. It is. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what accounted for the re-emphasis on pens as opposed to, you know, the rest of the products that you distribute, watches, timepieces, cufflinks, and so on? When I first started, we were only the distributors for Aurora and Omos. Um, and at that point, Omos was going through a tricky period where they had just transferred from, uh, you know, a major stake in LVMH into back to, you know, more of like a, you know, Italian-run community, let's or Italian-run company, let's say. Um, and they were kind of lost in their way. So they, they were really not finding a good sell-through. Mm. For some reason, 
There was a switch that flicked. And I, I think it really, it started with one of my clients. You know, we really uh, pressed and pressed and pressed and we, and we got Omos to do what's called them um, exclusives for our market. And they were just exclusive to the United States. And we got them to bring back a, a shape, the, we'll call it the vintage Paragon, where they weren't producing that at the moment. And mm-hmm. from, from that moment, Omas really, in my opinion, took off like a rocket ship. They became more flexible. They were doing all sorts of exclusives for all sorts of different markets. And I think that's when pens got exciting again at my company. We took on a long, around about that time also, we became the U.S. distributor for Montegrappa. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, building and building and building. I mean, that was, you know, a historic pen company, which I'm continuously impressed with all the time. Um, and just a few years after that, we took on Schaefer as a, as a distribution partner as well. In Australia, all of those companies, I believe, are distributed by, or through Guido. Isn't that correct, Tav? Yeah. It is. Yeah. So, it is. so, so the, the funny thing is that's kind of how I became familiar with, with Australia just as, a, as an enthusiast market. I've known Guido maybe for probably about a decade, I would say. Um, he, he was always coming to the Los Angeles Pen Show with his wife, and they would right. use it as like a holiday. Um, just I know Australians like to travel. Uh, so he would, he would always come there. I mean, the, the, the LA Pen Show is literally right down the block from one of the most beautiful beaches uh, on the West Coast. And, you know, we spent a lot of time together. He was always selling Aurora and I was kind of competing against him because I was also distributing Aurora and, you know, yeah. he was selling it as a distributor, but he was bringing it to the States. But we kind of developed a friendship. Um, and from that friendship, I have actually helped him acquire the distribution for Montegrappa. Um, oh, so Guido okay. and I have been friends for a little while. <laughs> Excellent. I was wondering, like, whether there was any tensions because you're Kenro, if... if um, well, we can discuss this later, but if um, if Kenro then becomes a presence in the Australian market, then you're kind of overlapping on a lot of those brands. I actually, I reached out to Guido like 150 million times <laughs> to be the distributor for Estabrook. And I don't know if he's just too busy or what it is, but he, keep on, he kept on ignoring those questions. So we're here. <laughs> I'm going alone. <laughs> well, you, we brought up Estabrook. Uh, so let's get into that. Okay, cool. I actually had a question that was sort of uh, related to sort of to both of these topics. Actually, is that well, I was going to ask, how did Kenro move from luxury corporate gifts to acquiring such a venerable brand name as as Estabrook? So this is this is really a, a long winded story, which I'll I'll try to make it as quick as possible. <laughs> um, and it's a it's a long history. So my my boss, his first first career was uh, was very involved in leather. Um, and manufacturing leather. He was actually one of the first companies to be a supplier for Nike. So his company, something happened uh, with the Russian government and his company went out of business and found himself basically looking for a job. And he was friendly with uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Rosenberg, who's a, whose father was in the pen industry. And he brought to my boss's uh, attention, hey, why don't we go into this business together? Let's go take Aurora into the United States of America. Um, Long story short, Robert Rosenberg breaks up with his girlfriend that weekend. My boss knows nothing about pens, goes to Italy, and brings Aurora back home to America. Um, so at, at, to that point, Aurora was not even really focusing on export at all. They were really just keeping everything in Italy. I opened up uh, with my with my boss and, and really started to sell pens into America. When was that? Like in the 90s or the 80s? It, probably in the late 80s. Yeah, okay. Um, so fast forward a long time later, Robert Rosenberg is kind of in and out of the pen industry a bit. He's, he's a lawyer, actually, also. He has, a, he has his legal degree. Um, he finds that Estabrook 
was absorbed by one of these major conglomerates. I think it's Waterman and Parker, but they weren't really doing with anything with it. So he said, why don't I just register the trademark? They forgot to register it and start making pens under the Estabrook brand name. He had previously done this with Conklin. Uh, so he took Con- he sold it to Yaffa, who is you know another one of the big distributors here in the States. They handle Monteverdi. Um, they have Conklin. They have uh, Stipula and a couple other brands. Um, so long story short, he does this again with Estabrook, but this time partners with us. So he, he gets a... He takes the brand really as far as he can and, and approaches us and says, listen, this is the best I could really do with this. Um, we really need a proper distributor, a proper sales force. And I have to say, I, the, the community here wasn't really loving what he was doing with the Estabrook brand name. I mean, there was you know, a lot of rumors and you know, bad press on the, uh, the blogs and that sort of stuff. Um, you can probably even see some stuff from the pen addict that got pretty hairy. Uh, but, uh, (laughs) we try to stay above this because, um, we don't know a lot of the background, but it's very hard to miss. This was a, this was an ugly, this was an ugly fight. This was an ugly fight. Um, we, we took over the brand and Mm -hmm. kind of phased him out a little bit. We, we bought, we bought him out and, and for the past three years, we've kind of done things the way that we want to do it. Um, reinvented the brand and we're really credited with relaunching Estabrook. Well, let's get into those areas where you've swerved, let's say, or redirected um, the brand from its previous owners. Like, mm-hmm. what it, what new directions did you take it? I mean, we we, we always had. Uh, I'll say, when we first when I when I first started to work for Kenro, we had this private label brand. We called it Labelle, and during those days, that was probably around two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, maybe even to two thousand eight. The the model was really find a pen from China, take their sample and put your name on it and sell it. And that stuff sold. And that was really the business model at that point. But I think the enthusiast and the customer demand so much more now. And we were really out of the private label game. I mean, Estabrook in essence is really our own private label now um, because we're, you know, making every single decision, sourcing every single bit of it. But the customer is so much more sophisticated that we took a completely different approach here. Um, The idea was we ultimately have designed every single pen on our own. Um, we have a, a uh, designer that we've been friendly with um, from Montegrappa, uh, who is kind of like a uh, contracted agent through Montegrappa and actually worked for Montblanc for a period of time. Um, he's based in Hungary. And he kind of works with our, with our initial vision and then draws the technical drawings from there. Um, and then we, we've, we've spent a lot of time and energy learning what it is to be a manufacturer with an emphasis always on quality, you know, we, we're always trying to find something that can be affordable, that can be made well, um, and finding the best partners to make it with. So that's kind of where things have really turned for us. It's it's just a way different approach than I'd say maybe 10, 15 years ago. It's really interesting, actually, that you mentioned that you that um, that you're using a the, or that you're con- in contact with a designer that works also for Monte Grappa because um, it's I've noticed there's some some um, design commonalities between some of the modern models of Monte Grappa and um, what I can see online of the Estabrooks. Not saying they're bad <laughs> designs at all. I actually quite like the design. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's interesting that you say that because I was wondering what what, why, what the reason was why there were some common themes between some of the, the Estabrook models and some of the later Monte Grappa models. That makes sense now. So this, yeah, I think this, this guy has a very, like, he has a very fashion forward aesthetic, like, if you were to give him no direction at all, he would come out with something completely from space. I mean, that's kind of where he would lean. And I think that's always going to come across in his designs. Um, we've always tried to tie in 
the old company with the new company though. So that's kind of where we maybe hold him back a little bit with regards to, you know, too much of an aggressive look. Um, you know, we, we just actually launched, um, a new pen probably about a month ago. It's called the J pen. Um, and I don't know, I mean, Estabrook, I would, I would imagine is not such a popular brand or ever was such a popular brand in Australia. But if you go to a pen show in the United States of America, it's probably, you know, you have, you have the vintage dealers and then you have the modern dealers. And on the vintage dealer table, it's basically Parker 51s, Old Montblanc and Estabrook J pens. And that's what everyone kept on saying, excuse me, when we took over the brand, when are you going to reinvent the J? And that's kind of, it took us almost a whole year to really do that, but he helped us kind of design it, build it, um, and ultimately manufacture it. You're, you guess, guess correctly, Estabrook is not a household name in Australia. In fact, right. um, I don't think I've ever seen an Estabrook in real life. Um, <laughs> I've been to vintage shows in Australia, but they don't really appear over here. Um, there's no, right. They don't circulate in the secondhand market. And um, I'm not sure that they were ever distributed in Australia at all. Even though um, we've had, we have quite a lot of old Schaefer's and old Parker's because I believe at certain points they were produced in Australia. Um, there, there were some. I own a couple of vintage uh, Esther Brooks that I found here in Australia. I didn't oh, buy okay. them from overseas. Um, and there, I think the big market for Estabrook in Australia was for its sort of disposable nibs and also a lot of the dip pen nibs that were used were also common like like commonly Estabrook I found in a number of antique shops um, a lot of vintage Estabrook dip pen like the steel dip pen nibs um, that that seemed to be the main market that Estabrook had back in the day but that's just from my observations I don't know I'm no, I'm no historian so so that's that's kind of what they were most known for. And sorry to interrupt you, Tap. But no, they, no, no, go. They had 240 different nib sizes, and this was up until the 70s. Um, I mean, manufacturing at scale is impossible to to offer something like that these days. Um, but at that point, that was what they were known for. It, it was a pen for the way that you write. So they had 240 different nib sizes that could screw in, screw out, change the nib. Dip pens were very were very prominent. Also, um, I think. At a maximum in the 70s, they were producing about 3 million pens a year in Camden, New Jersey, which is not so far from here. Um, so that's the part that I think that, that's probably why there are so many in the States is because they're, they were making millions of pens every year. Um, and this is a brand that started, you know, in the mid 1800s. Well, I found um, mm. the fact in on your website and also on the Wikipedia page that at its height, I think they were producing more than 200 million pens a year which is... Yeah, I think that's a little bit of an over-exaggeration. Okay. We always hear the number three million, but 200 million is a little... Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know where I read that, but that just really caught my attention. I thought, that's hmm. amazing. Uh, how many pens does one person have to use, have to buy um, yeah. Yeah, to sell I mean, many of yours? I know there was an element of disposability, but that was mainly for the nibs. I, I, correct. Correct me if I'm wrong, but back in the day, the, these pens had... A similar position in the market to say the uh, the Lamy Safari, in that if they were relatively cheap, they were colourful, they were fun, they were plastic, um, and the nibs were easily interchangeable. You could just swap whatever nib you want onto it, and and that's it. So no, that's exactly that's, it, Tav. Yeah. Yep, that's yeah. that's exactly it. I mean, they were they were relatively affordable. I mean, I think I think you were uh, even find a, a a secondhand market J Pen 
today for like $40. Uh, so yeah. I don't know, the prices were probably, uh, you know, 10, 12 bucks probably during the 70s, 60s and 50s. Mm. Um, but that's, uh, that's exactly what they were most known known for. So where do you see, um, I'm going to call the first revival of Estabrook, Estabrook 2.0, and you're now Estabrook 3.0. So okay. in the uh, reinvigorated um, revival of Estabrook, what do you think you're bringing to it? Uh, I mean, Kenro, and where do you see the new Estabrook uh, situated in the US market? Are you still aiming for that, um, you know, every man appeal um, with the focus on interchangeability and personalization of the nibs or mm-hmm. are you you know searching for a different sort of market so we're we're moving in a few different directions first i'll say um there's a core of core of us a, four, a core four which we really say at kenro industries and all of us are ultra passionate about fountain pens and i think that kind of comes out in, in what we produce I, or at least i hope it does I, I i know in the in the states we've had a phenomenal start i mean we've become you know, some of the bigger retailers are calling us the powerhouse brand of the year. Um, and I think it really translates because we we literally walk into the office, all of us get in early every morning, and we spend an hour talking about what other people are doing, what can we do, what do we like, what what this, what that. I mean, it's, it's literally just a, a brainstorming session every single morning in the office. Um, and this is, all of us have a little bit of a different eye, you know, Carrie, uh, no, Carrie from Fountain Pen Day knows everything about every single pen. You know, Brian is more of like a lifestyle consultant. Um, Joel's, you know, an 82-year-old entrepreneur who uh, is kind of looking at things from a from a different uh, mentality. Where he's he's the older one in the group, and he always kind of brings us in like you're only creating something for someone young, and, and brings a little bit of a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of like the the financial man who kind of has a little bit of a different, like, how much is that going to cost? How much You're is the reality it? check? I'm the reality <laughs> check. Exactly. Um, so, so that's, that's how we really develop product all the time. Um, so at the moment we're moving in a few different directions. Um, one of them is the nib option. Um, we actually just did a partnership with a um, nib grinder in the States from custom nib studio. Her name is Gina. Uh, she, wo- she was an apprentice for John Modishaw at nibs.com for five years mm-hmm. um and and kind of went off on her own um and we did a partnership with her where we, we sent her our esterbrook nibs and she does a grind that she it's basically like a medium stub she calls it the gina journaler um so that's like our step uh our step towards you know more nib options um you know we're constantly trying to find ways to offer even more nib options you know it's, it's tricky in this day and age where you know bach or yovo or schmidt you know they want 5,000 ordered of every single nib size and really trying to figure out how to juggle that with still figuring out, you know, we're predominantly sold in the States. We're growing globally, but what does that mean insofar as distribution? How many should we make of each thing? So we're kind of trying to dance and learn a little bit before we really go full out on it. But um, that's one of the things we're looking at. Um, We're constantly experimenting with new materials. That's one of the things that I think is a little bit different than the vintage Esterbrook stuff where, we, we worked with this U.S. domestic-based uh, pen material maker called Tim McKenzie, and he produces a diamond cast. Um, I'm, I'm constantly getting samples of all sorts of different acrylics or uh, stone or uh, you name it. We're really trying to figure out if our manufacturing partners can work with it. And sometimes they think I'm crazy, um, but we're trying to bring that innovativeness to the brand as well. Um, and then I would say the third direction is we're, we're trying to also bring some lifestyle to the brand as well. Um, 
you know, we have a we have a, a brand of pen cases that we call the Nook, the Estabrook Pen Nook. Um, it's basically, you know, a uh, a nice little pen case that we designed. Um, we're working on an ink line. Um, we've done bookmarks, little fun things like that, and we're we're really trying to think how to bring some other lifestyle items, you know, similar to a brand like Shinola who does uh, bicycles. I mean, what do they know about the bicycle market? But they know how to design stuff. Um, so we're really trying to bring it in a little bit uh, and, and collaborate with certain brands too. It seems like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're you're taking sort of a, a drop of the essence of the old Estabrook, but, and then adding that to the, the current designs and the ideas, the modern ideas, so it's more of it's a mostly modern brand, but with a drop of the core essence of the original Estabrook. Is that, is that exactly? Kind of and always kind of we're we're trying to look look back into the past. Always, um, one of the things we did with our our first launch and our most popular launch was the Estabrook Esti. Um, back in the you know seventies, uh, the all of the J pens and all of the Estis were nicknamed Estis. Uh, so that's what we mm. we named our first collection. And for that pen, we actually had our designer create an adapter, which was essentially a grip section. And that grip section would accept the vintage Estabrook nibs. So essentially, if you had, you know, a draw of 200 or so Estabrook nibs, we brought them back to life. Um, and we actually noticed here in the States that the market went crazy on these, where they were selling them for a buck or two a piece. And now we're seeing them sell for five, six, seven bucks a piece. Um, because now these pens could, these little nibs could be used again. Yeah, I was actually this close to, to buying one of those for that exact reason, because <laughs> I, I can use vintage nibs in a modern pen. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I, the only reason I didn't end up getting one was because my, the color that I really liked was out of stock. Um, because they were so crazy, people going so crazy over them. The only thing they had was black, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I kind of want the colorful one. That, that was uh, literally the only reason I don't have one of them right now. So. <laughs> we'll get you next time, Tav. <laughs> to me, uh, Ryan, it sounds like what Kenro is bringing to the brand is its pre-existing embeddedness within, like the um, the niche, the artisanal community, the connections mm-hmm. with the pen shows its understanding of the um, both the vintage and also the modern day um, market and um, not so much focusing on or competing, I guess, with the big conglomerates like Parker, Schaefer, um, Cross and so on. So you're still, it, it seems to me like because of your nib options, because of the collaborators that you're working with and also the small batch materials that you're also working with, it does sound to me like you're focusing more on that sort of collector's market, people who buy multiple models of this same pen because they come in different colors. Um, would that exactly. Be yeah. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, we're, we're also, I mean, we, like I said, we are kind of moving in a few directions. We're also trying to broaden the, the, the horizons of pens on our own as well. Um, one of the things we actually just did, which most people may not know yet, is um, we did a collaboration with Accutron. Um, and Accutron is a is a watch brand also from the 60s and 70s. Um, and it was actually owned by Bulova for a period of time. And now it's under the Citizen Watch Group um, umbrella. So it's a, it's a major organization. And they're relaunching this Spaceview watch, which was basically a, a tuning fork, uh, which was the movement. Um, and they're oh. relaunching this brand. Oh. I know this watch. Oh, it's, yes. it's the one watch that I've actually gone. It's like oh world God, famous. One of those. It yeah, looks like it it's, it looks like it's from space. It yeah, actually was it on the moon. Comes. 
Yeah, that's yeah, it. That's it. You got it, Tav. Yeah, it's 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 one of the old, older sort of uh, harmonic movements or something like that. That's like it. You, yeah, you can hear like a little sound. That's, yeah, that's yeah. exactly uh, it. Uh, yeah. So cool. so we actually made a we we were one of their strategic partners. We actually made an Estabrook pen for the Accutron relaunch. So that will be available uh, for sale probably in the coming weeks, maybe a month mm-hmm. or so. Um, so really a way to get pens in general. I mean, they bought fountain pens. Uh, so pens in general, just in front of customers who maybe necessarily aren't thinking about pens. I mean, I, I find that there's, you know, in the we've always been attracted to the jewelry industry only because I think there's a lot of overlap in the collector mentality um, for, you know, guys and girls who like watches, who like movements. Um, and, and I feel like they could easily be persuaded to try a fountain pen. Yeah, I'm, I'm always in favor of um, directions that expand the audience for fountain pens, right? Yeah. And um, anything that appeals to that sort of nostalgia and um, analog tools, um, I think you'll have a receptive audience among fans of watches and jewelry, as you said. That's really interesting. <laughs> I think you mentioned before that Estabrook as a brand dates back to the 18th century. Speaking as a very ignorant Australian, um, just let us know a little bit about the history of the brand because I'm sure Tab knows a lot more than I do. I my, mm-hmm. my only understanding of it is that apparently one of the presidents wrote with um, an Estabrook. It was it was technically the presidential pen for a period of time. So okay. that's uh, that's they they start they were founded in 1858, um, and from there they were really the biggest American pen brand for a long period of time. Actually, made in Camden, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Americana play has always been very strong with Estabrook, where they were the presidential pen. I mean, famous enthusiasts are Abraham Lincoln. Um, they, we like to think that he wrote some pretty important documents, maybe with an Estabrook pen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, John, John F. Kennedy, um, Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, so really some of the most important presidents all were known for using Estabrook pens. We also have a, col- a couple important illustrators. Um, the illustrator who designed Donald Duck strictly used an Estabrook pen, and actually Charles Schultz, uh, who who did Peanuts and Snoopy and you know Charlie Brown and all that sort of stuff, he was very adamant about Estabrook pens. Insofar as he actually left all of his Estabrook pens to a museum when he passed away. Um, so for a long period of time, we were probably the most important American pen brand. And abruptly in the 70s, they basically stopped. Um, nobody really knows why. But the, the company went completely pretty much out of business and really was absorbed by one of these, like I mentioned before, big conglomerates, which I believe was Parker Waterman. Um, and then they kind of just had the brand name, but didn't really do anything. with it. It's been very interesting to see the progression of a lot of these big legacy brands um, in the US. Right. Was it Retro 51 that um, is closing down recently? Um, Parker... Waterman inquired by the French, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Schaefer and Cross are still US owned, yep. as far as I know. Um, they are. I think it's very, it's certainly laudable um, as an endeavor to try to revive that legacy and also appeal to the history of the brand. And um, I think it's very interesting project and probably the right time for it. But I, I'd be admiss if I didn't ask you, um, you mentioned that all the pans previously were made in Camden, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the current ma- manufacturing situation? I know they're designed in Hungary and um, they're designed conceived. in Hungary. Yeah. yeah. Conceived, conceived in, in the, the States. Yeah. Um, most of, I would say all, well, all of our pens are made in Taiwan and the, the Esterbrook 
Esty is the only material that's actually sourced from, uh, well, not all of the Estes, but the Sparkle Limited Edition was sourced from the United States. Besides that, all of the acrylics are made in Taiwan as well. Um, we have we have visions of, of starting to bring some stuff a little bit closer, you know, to America um, or even in Europe. Um, you know, we have a lot of sources and manufacturing friends, um, but it was always a always an emphasis on price to value, which I think is something that's also really important. And that's what we've really um, identified as a market. And we, we really try to keep in, in the U.S. dollar sense under four hundred dollars. So really between two and four hundred dollars is where we really find that our place fits. And manufacturing in some of these little places gets quite expensive. Um, so we re- it was really just important to us to find quality manufacturers, people that we could trust uh, and make a good product. And I think we've done that so far. It would be my it would be my dream. I I always joke about with my boss to buy and see to buy a CNC machine and just let me try to figure it out. But he hasn't uh, he hasn't conceded on that point yet. <laughs> I'm glad you told me about this because um, I think everyone really understands that manufacturing in the US is not the same conditions as manufacturing in the US 100 years ago, and um, we shouldn't let nostalgia trap us into circumstances which are just unrealistic, right? You have to be the reality check, as you said. You're the finance guy. Um, you can't work with something that's unworkable. Um, yeah, and I think the $200 to $400 US range mm-hmm. that you mentioned, um, that puts you sort of in the same bracket as like Frank and Christoph. Yeah, I would say we're, we're maybe just a... Yeah. Just a touch above Franklin Christoph, maybe. You know, I I think he has some lower stuff, but um, we're just a, maybe a little bit above them. So Franklin Christoph and Canalea, um, they 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 are they have that appeal of being handmade in America. Um, right. How do you how do you intend to compete with that kind of appeal? Because I know that's the, one of their big appeals. From our standpoint, I think that that was something that we kind of knew would be unrealistic to really to to start off with. That um, you know. I definitely consider them competitors of ours, but uh, the the environment in the States is very friendly. I think there's plenty of business for everyone to be around. Um, our play was always kind of, um, you know, as an important brand name. And I think that that matters to people. So you, you can't, you can't reproduce a hundred or two, you know, 200 years of history or 150 years of history where Franklin Christoph and Canalea Pen Company are both brand names. Now that's not to say that there's no substance behind Esterbrook besides the brand name, but we knew that, uh, comparing ourselves to them with the, you know, manufacturing in the United States was always really going to be unrealistic. So we had to kind of try to find a different way to move about. You know, they have they have their own uh, in-house nib grinder where we have, uh, you know, just people who can maybe tune a nib. But you know, Aubrey Aubrey has her own grind, and and Jim before that had his own grind. So uh, they have they have some very uh, unique yeah. tools at their disposal, which we can't really compete with. <laughs> well, having a brand and having you know, more than 200 years of history, it's an add-on. It's um, a bonus, of course, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it sets certain expectations, unlike Franklin Christophe and um, Canaleo when they established themselves, you know, they could market themselves whatever they wanted. They had all this freedom right. to um, locate themselves and build an identity, whereas you have this pre-existing history that you really have to work with. And I was wondering working in the US, selling in the US to this market that is already so familiar with the Estabrooks, um, mm-hmm. with its vintage pens, is it any different to how you're approaching an overseas market like Australia where we don't know, how, we don't have any prior associations with the brand? 
so I think when it when it comes to that, we we really have a little bit of a different approach where we're a, we're a small team, um, and we can't conquer the world all at one. Nor nor do we want to. Um, so I think we're trying to just focus slowly. This this was a year that was going to be important for us for global expansion, um, but. I mean, obviously, COVID had other plans, and and it's you know it's a unf- unfortunate year for a lot of different reasons. Um, but that being said, we, we've just been very slow about about how we grow. Um, like I said, learning to forecast, making sure that we have supply, making sure that we can supply our U.S. customers, and then taking that to you know a global market where we've we've had some really good movement in Germany. Um, and I think we, the way we built Estabrook so popular in the states is through you know, grassroots marketing, um, getting together with enthusiasts, clubs, uh, influencers, Mm -hmm. and really spreading the message from that. And I think ultimately, you know, that's why I reached out to you about this podcast. Um, I was in a, uh, a very small Japanese pen store called Yosheka Stationers uh, in Queens, New York. And there was a girl there who was talking to me about this podcast and and she traded a pen with i guess a gentleman named chuck who i don't even know chuck but i've heard uh-huh. now everybody tell me yeah <laughs> i've heard everybody tell me about chuck um and I, I i'm a religious listener to the Penotic podcast but uh i listened to your podcast on the way home from that trip to queens and, and in new york 15 miles could sometimes take an hour so i think i got through your 90 minute episode in a 15 minute drive uh and i was like wow i need to reach out to these guys and somehow figure out how to start there and maybe start to approach a market that way. Um, so we're really patient. We know how to, how to build a brand in a, in a country and I don't have unrealistic expectations. I'd just like to learn about your community, learn what makes the Australian market tick, which I think is from what I've heard in the past is somewhat similar to the American mentality where we both appreciate the same types of pens, where maybe the Japanese market is very different than the American market. But I think the Australian and the American customers seem to like the same pens. I think that you guys shop at a lot of our American retailers, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But but that being said, we, we I really just want to learn about the Australian market, take it slow, figure out what's important to you guys, figure out who the right partners are to, are to work with. Um, and ultimately find myself at one of your pen shows one day. <laughs> yeah, that'll be once, fun. Once pen shows become possible again. That's yeah. exactly it. Tav's worked directly in the pen industry, and so has Sharon, one of our other co-hosts. She worked with okay. Nami and Monty Grappa. But I think, Tav, you mentioned in one of our earlier conversations that in Australia the most popular brand names are usually European and then followed by maybe the Asian Company. Yeah, that's for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in Australia, we, we're not as we're nowhere near as saturated with fountain pens as 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 the USA. Um, we we have far fewer fountain pen users, um, and that's resulted in a lot of people considering fountain pens to be a like a corporate gift, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But because of that, brands like Parker, Mont Blanc, Waterman, they really dominate the market a lot of the time because they are a gift, sort of a gift pen. Whereas, uh, you know, buying somebody a a sparkly, beautiful acrylic pen from Estabrook or Franklin Christoph or something like that wouldn't have quite the same appeal. Uh, but there are also a lot of people in Australia who are very arty. They love their stationery. They love to bullet journal. And they are probably the ones that would buy a, a cute, more colourful pen, maybe a smaller pen, maybe one that's a little more unusual um, or mm-hmm. one that has an interesting history behind behind the brand. Um, so so I, I do think the, 
the from from what I learned in my time selling pens, the Australian market tends to, for some reason, like at least the in, the people who buy in person from from brick and mortar shops, often look for either a, a cute, relatively affordable pen that they can use, they can take to uni. Um, or they can um, do their journaling with or something like that or keep on their desk as a cute little thing or thereafter a a gift for their their boss or something like that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. There's not as much of that middle ground where brands like Canalea and Franklin Christoph and um, who else, you know, Herbert, the Herbert Pen Company and all of those. Yeah, of course. Bexley, Bexley, I love Bexley personally, but... <laughs> We're the hardcore collectors, and as you said, there's a lot of we're the sort of people that tend to shop at American stores. So there, there does seem to be a little bit of that gap in the Aussie market. But I think another thing that Aussies are very cognizant of is the Australia tax. Um, and yeah. it's not necessarily not, not an actual tax, but it's just things just cost more here. You know, if when you bring a pen to Australia, it's going to cost more for some reason, probably because of mm-hmm. shipping and marketing, et cetera, et cetera. But that's one of the big reasons why people in Australia that are enthusiasts like like myself tend to shop overseas a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think you're always going to find different opportunities. I mean, we have a lot of that happening in the States also where we find, uh, you know, U.S. customers a lot of times will find a pen. Um, I know Pelican has this problem in particular where you can get a pen from uh, Colt Pens or in England or something that's, mm-hmm. you know, substantially cheaper than uh, than than that in the States. So I think a lot of the Pelican business actually gets bought overseas. I mean, the reality of the situation is we're, we're in a global world now where it's really not that difficult to ship something to Australia, uh, buy something from Australia. Um, and when I did, I, I actually did open up one account so far in Australia, and this is a uh, pulp addiction, uh, Hal Pritchard. And, um, so I, I, his pricing seems to be kind of in line. So that that's kind of been really important for us is really to have this, uh, bigger mentality where there's kind of like a level playing field where, you know, in essence, really trying to support the local, the local market really, because I think the local retailers need their help also. Pulp addiction is an interesting case because they, I believe used to have a physical presence in the Hunter Valley for mm-hmm. a long time, but they closed that store maybe a year or two ago. So now I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're entirely online and you're right. Their right. prices are very reasonable. Um, and they have a lot of like the Lamy's, the, um, what else do they do? A lot of the inks that we tend to buy. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Preppies. Nice. Yeah. The more affordable and they generally mm. tend to sell. Mm. We have, a, we have a decent amount of like, I would say probably 50% of the, of the retailers in the States have gone strictly online only also. So um, we're not completely adverse to that. I think it's just the, the manner in which you do it. Um, you know, Goulet Pen Company in the States is really, is really famous for that. Um, you know, producing content and showing videos. And I think one of the things that made them the strongest was taking basic questions where the fountain pen industry for the longest time was like, you don't know how to fill a fountain pen? Get out of here. We don't want to talk to you. Where really they said... <laughs> Sure. <laughs> if you have a, no question is a stupid question and I'm not only going to answer that question, I'm going to make a video about that question and I'm going to teach you all these silly things that everyone is already assumed to have known. And they made the environment in the States more comfortable for new enthusiasts to enter where I have to say myself, if I wasn't working for Kenro industries, I would be completely in, intimidated by uh, the pen shows that I went to in the early years. 
Um, and now yeah. that is that that environment is completely different where they have tours at pen shows in the states of you know first time pen buyers or first time pen show attendees how to walk a pen show what the different tables are um they make it very welcoming mm. and so 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 my point really is that can be done at a brick and mortar shop but it can also be done online and that's kind of what we're seeing a big uh you know big lean on, in the states in that as well well if you've talked to guido quite regularly then I'm sure he must have mentioned Peters of Kensington, which is a, a very big retailer of fountain mm-hmm. pens in Australia. And they sort of push brands who are in, I think, the price range that Estabrook mm-hmm. is sort of in, um, as well as the more limited editions, um, like the really, really high-end Auroras, Monte Grappers, um, and Stipulas, mm-hmm. although they have lesser volumes of those, but they also do like Cross, um, SD DuPont, Schaefer's, I think, as well, the mm-hmm. mid range and high range Lamies. Yeah. And they do the lower range stuff too. They do the, the Caveco ones and they do, you know, like the Caveco uh, sport ones and they do the, the Lamy Safaris for a pretty reasonable price too, although I will say still with the Australia tax uh, mm-hmm. attached. But the, <laughs> but the advantage of Peters of Kensington is that they do have a physical store um, and right, multiple yeah. multiple locations now, at least two in Sydney that I know of. I thought that just seemed like a natural fit um, for the kind yeah, of so I did I did a whole a whole batch of research. so I, now I, my my idea was to have this podcast be out there for a little bit and maybe introduce myself to um some 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 of your enthusiasts. Uh, I'm also now part of your two different. Australian Facebook groups, one by accident, one on purpose. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and now uh, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that this is really the way that I will start to learn who the better partners are there, um, reach out to them and see really how we can get things started there. I'm, of course, willing to start slow. Again, I, I really, my main aim is to be able to make it to the Melbourne Pen Show one year. <laughs> yeah. Have you considered maybe the Sydney Pen Show? I would do the Sydney Pen Show also. I'm not actually. I'm. I'm not saying this. I mean, yes, there's probably some bias here, but can I just say that the the Melbourne Pen Show is very much a vintage um, focused show. Uh, it has a lot of okay. antique stuff there, whereas the Sydney Pen Show, um, it was very much focused on modern stuff, um, modern pen manufacturers, modern inks, um, and stuff like that, with a little bit of vintage thrown in there. So the the two of them, having been to both, they're both quite different. Um, both really fun, but really different different um, facets of the pen sphere. And I think actually the Sydney Pen Show would have been a bit more accessible to a first time pen buyer um, because so that might be that might be my spot then, Tav. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think yeah, I think that the Estabrook would fit quite well into the the Sydney Pen Show, but it might be a little bit out of place unless they've changed a lot of the focus in the next Melbourne pen. Now that you've said it, you've actually caught us in an interesting time because I know that the organisers of the Melbourne Pen Show, they brought in a lot of new people and they're actively trying to engage with a more a younger audience and mm-hmm. to bring um, newer brands. Like last year, I don't know if you went to the 2019 show, Tav, but they had Robert Oster and his mm-hmm. like pen, his ink testing station um, there set up for the first time in Australia and that was very Mm. popular and um, they had a lot of the younger online retailers there as well in addition to the vintage market and Sydney I feel like is working on from the other end Uh, we started out with 
mainly new pens, and now we're trying to bring more sellers of vintage pens into yeah. um, the distributors and the sellers at the shows. So we're sort of like coming from opposite ends and trying to meet a little <laughs> bit more in the middle. Yeah, I couldn't make the 2019 one. It's a shame, actually. I was really looking it forward to it. It was quite different. Um, didn't get enough time off work. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, a space for um, a new American brand at either of those shows. And hopefully 2021 we'll actually be able to have shows again. Um, Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. And I know it would actually be in the interests of both shows to schedule them a little bit closer together in the year. I know Sydney currently it's in the depths of winter. It's usually in August and Melbourne shows normally in November. And that's terrible if you're an international distributor or seller and you want to come to both shows but making the trip twice is just exorbitant because it's so expensive to fly to the to australia and imagine imagine me thinking that august was actually uh the summer i would have been uh completely hosed my i would have had oh. packed all the wrong clothes not even thought about it <laughs> i somewhat knew that but I, I was i have to say i'm a little naive <laughs> well, i would have well, totally <laughs> packed wrong for the for the august show <laughs> our winters are quite temperate so you don't get like summer okay. Nothing like New York. No. Although Melbourne can be a bit chilly. Melbourne can be a bit chilly. Melbourne so. can be a bit chilly. Melbourne in um, September or October is still sometimes a little bit chilly. But, yeah, I think it would be great to, um, you know, maybe move Sydney show a little bit later in Melbourne a little bit earlier in the mm. same vicinity, same fortnight or so, so that people can attend both um, if they're coming from, like, Singapore, the US, Europe, Japan, and so on. Because mm-hmm. we've had stores and manufacturers especially in Asia, who really want to attend, but it either clashes with the shows in Europe um, or in Taiwan and in Japan, or they just don't want to make the trip twice. So that's, I think, a direction that the show organisers will have to be looking into. But you've caught us at this interesting phase of the development of the community here where, you know, this, this podcast really, this podcast has existed for three years and mm-hmm. we've made um, a concrete effort to reach out to, you know, newcomers, but also to appeal to people who've been in the community for a long time. So our discussion is sometimes incredibly um, detailed and um, very, very niche, but also we make an effort to make um, 101 episodes, especially earlier mm-hmm. on, which are really primers to newcomers. So we try to, like the shows, we try to reach out to both of those markets. And, <laughs> um, and the two groups that you mentioned, the community really only arose in Australia, I think, in the last five, six years. So, um, yeah, if, if you tried to enter Australia a little bit earlier, maybe it would have been quite hard to find a receptive audience. But maybe I think now it's, we're more well-placed I guess. A mark. Well, that's a, that's the same, the same thing in the States though. Really the community has really only popped up where uh, as strong as it is now, maybe only in the past six or seven years. So it's, it's relatively new also, um, but you'll find, I, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but pen shows in the States are extremely important. There's probably about between 12 or 14 throughout the year. And some people attend every single one of them. Um, that being said, America is, is pretty much, uh, you know, as big as Australia and so far as, uh, you know, fly time, I mean, you can't get anywhere without a flight. Um, so uh, it's pretty impressive to see people traveling, using their vacation time to go to pen shows, um, be at every single show nonetheless. 
Uh, so that 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 community aspect is also pretty important uh, in the states. Yeah, it's it's very different here. Um, our, we only have two shows, Melbourne and Sydney. Okay. And my understanding is that a lot of people aren't even aware of that the shows exist. Certainly because we don't have the local manufacturing base. Like we have a lot less of those micro um, brands, micro makers that you have in the US. So there's mm-hmm. less appeal to attending a show where you can meet the maker, try something that's a show special, um, get access to things that you can't access online. There's always that challenge. So the key perhaps to building the shows here locally would be to introduce more foreign brands and um, foreign retailers to get them to bring in products that we have uh, less accessibility to in our brick and mortar stores here. I think that's... No, I think that makes a ton of sense. That's, that, that sounds pretty, uh, pretty logical in my mind is really to just make it more, make it more of a happening like that. Mm. Speaking of, of markets though, I've, this is sort of the, I mean, I think using the word elephant in the room would be a bit too dramatic, but there's a there's a lot of market saturation of relatively cheap Parker, Waterman, Schaefer and Pilot pens that that have that kind of, you know, I was talking about the, the colourful cuteness that Estabrook definitely has, but there, there are a lot of um, sort of cute, colourful pens that, Parker and, and all these other venerable brands have that are much better known still because they have that kind of continuity. Uh, you know, there's never sure. not been Parker. There's never not been Waterman. There's never not been Schaefer. So when people are looking for a, a cute gift for their, you know, maybe their significant other who's a, an artist or, or maybe they're looking for something for themselves because they don't want to throw out a disposable ballpoint pen, they've already got the Watermans, the Parkers, the Schaefers, the Pilots that are, I think, many of their models, not all, but are in a slightly lower price bracket to the Estabrook, um, how would how would you be able to get these these same sort of people that in Australia that like cute, colourful, uh, um, visually appealing pens as, as opposed to, you know, the corporate look of, of Mont Blanc? Um, how would you get them to, to, to enjoy that? I think the, the market you're talking about, Tav, is something that will come will come in time. I mean, with Estabrook, it's a it's a growing process, and it's no secret that you know these brands are well established. Um, they're obviously um, buying products in the hundreds of thousands, as opposed to Estabrook, mm. where we're at this point just a niche brand. Um, you know, yeah. learning a little bit more about the market, learning to get more comfortable, opening up different uh, distribution markets, but doing it slowly and. As we grow, we'll be able to buy at bigger scale and then offer, in turn, a better a better price point. I think um, to the end user because at, at the moment we're doing all the things that those brands are doing, um, and probably I, I don't know the designers at Parker Waterman, um, but I I did know them at Schaefer, um, and and I know that they they weren't pen enthusiasts where we we actually are all pen enthusiasts. Wow. I mean, if you look at my pen case here, I have a Scribo pen, a Sailor pen, uh, an Omas pen. I mean, I, I, I collect pens myself. Um, so mm. I think in the long run, once we're able to buy a little bit more at scale, grow the brand a little bit longer, um, we'll be able to bring something that appeals to the enthusiast, uh, appeals to the person who just wants a gift, um, be able to offer it at a price that is hopefully going to be lower, um, where we're, we're, we're in a place right now where, where is, uh, you know, a different market, but we, we talk about all the time, how are we going to offer a pen at under a hundred dollars? Um, and that's really where we'd like to ultimately, uh, have an offering 
that is for everybody. Um, you know, our, we're also the distributors for Monte Grappa and Aurora. So we also have passion in the, you know, 500 to $1,000 price point. I know yeah. that price point very well. Um, that's something we're talking about offering gold nib fountain pens, piston fillers. Um, we're, in, we're dabbling and playing around with our own piston fill mechanism that we're actually designing proprietarily. Uh, mm. So there's all that's sorts of stuff like that that, that we're kind of just playing around with. Um, but we're very cognizant of the fact that 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 market is very real that that we're missing out on it um we'd like to be there eventually but it is a it is a growing process yeah i think the the sub hundred dollar mark in australia would be big um yeah just 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 yeah. because of what people do over here really mm, considering yeah. the yeah. number of lamy safaris that they <laughs> yeah exactly just in, just in general the, the safari market and the 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 was it the prera pilot prera you know um yeah. people just love that sort of thing but you mentioned you mentioned the brand before retro 51 uh who i mm. I, I mean is it important in australia at all um these 40 dollar ball these 40 dollar ballpoint pens damn it i my wallet I, I every they come out with a limited edition every single weekend and i find them getting sent that, to me and i don't have any money left because i'm buying these stupid retro 51s every single week so they're not as big as Australia, <laughs> but they have a cult following uh, i remember there, there were people who would come in to the shop that i worked at and they would be desperate to find a particular retro yeah. 51 and then I, and then i'd be like oh yeah we've got it i'd go out the back and i'd bring it out and they're like oh no that's not the the model such and such it's the very slight different model that has yep. very little visual difference they're like well that one actually has you know and they, they they would be after they've already got this one but they want the slightly different mm. version that came out i think they have a following but i don't think the distributors here bringing them in in very large volumes or um, right very so they're they're on like they're they're on their fail, farewell tour. And basically yeah. like every weekend they're launching a limited edition. And I think it, it just plays to that under $100 comments where mm -hmm. I myself am even spending, I can't even, I'm looking at a pile of retro 51s I have over here. I have a pile in my office at the, at the office. And it's just, you know, there, there is that collector mentality in the $100 price point as well. Uh, you know, how many people mm -hmm. have 75 Twisbees, uh, you know, 50 oh, yeah. Lamy Safaris. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think Sharon's a huge fan of the, was the pilot the pilot um tiny little petites, ones the petites petites yes oh sure yeah, Sharon yeah. loves those ones you know and i collect um the cocoonos i have okay 13 mm. of them in different colors nice. yeah <laughs> although i have to say having shown and I, this was complete this was months ago before but this was i think at the beginning of the year um i was showing a bunch of different pens to a non pen user who was an artist and she uh, she actually really did take a particular liking to the Estabrook pens simply because they had a different look to the other ones. So I mm -hmm. guess, I guess with with affordability could come a really really big market in Australia because because Estabrook looks quite different. They're distinctly right. different. And there's also there's also something to be said about the, the gateway drug. I mean those brands those brands do under a hundred dollars. And and my aim my my thought has always been you know you start off with a forty dollar pen. And before you know it, you're you're scaling up and trying something new. And if you really take hold of it, you really grow up through the ranks. I mean, we always talked in the states. It was always you start off with a with a Twisby, uh, and then you maybe get a Pilot Metropolitan, uh, and then before you know it, you're buying a Visconti Homo Sapiens. And I mean, there was this there was this like ritualistic um, stepping ladder that people yeah. continuously bought the same pens and moved through the ranks. Um, so we're not going to be the bottom of the the bottom 
the bottom rung, but maybe on the way up where we're one of the brands that people would like to consider. I think that's a good place to end it. Um, I'm very excited to see where the development goes. As you said, you're a fairly young company. Um, you want to grow slowly, but you have obviously a lot of ideas on all the directions that you want to take it. Um, I think Australia, I'm glad you're looking at Australia as um, a market for mm-hmm. future development. And um, I really want to tr- see a new Estabrook in person and compare it to the old ones. Mm. Um, I'm, I think that'd be a very interesting project. Um, so Tab, maybe you should show me one of your older Estabrook. <laughs> oh, I can hang it up. It's somewhere, it's in a box somewhere, but I'll find it. It's a, it's a nice, really nice one. But okay. I'd also, I personally would love to compare it. Um, I'm sure they would be distinctly different uh, to the modern ones, but you know, I'm sure there's some, I think there's some uniqueness to the modern ones as there was to the, the vintage mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, the, the new J is really uh, what, what Brad Dowdy actually said was it's the perfect, uh, the perfect representation of the vintage model in the, in the new model where we definitely made some design element changes. Um, but the clip is basically formed the same. We just made it a touch longer so that it actually is a good pocket pen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we elongated it a little bit, but kept the size kind of small. Um, and it's been getting really good reviews so far. So interesting. Um, interesting. I'm excited to see how how yeah. we can grow in Australia. What really happens with uh, with Estabrook and our, our product development? I mean, we have a we have a very interesting 2021 slated with, uh, like you mentioned, a ton of colors um, and colors on acrylics that people aren't seeing yet. And that's where I think we really pride ourselves yeah. is we were, we're looking, we're, we're always trying to take that micro brand philosophy to a more of a household name where, um, you know, Franklin Christoph has a very specific business model and they do a lot of things really well, but the fact that they don't handle distributors, don't really sell to retailers, you know, limits them with regards to expanding, let's say to a household name um, where we, we might be trying to take some of the, some of the type of uh, you know tendencies that they have, working on a smaller scale, but bringing that to retailers and maybe uh, getting in the face of the customer a little bit more, or being in more points of sale, um, or having dis- distribution partners who know their market specifically um, and marketing that way. Mm. Very exciting times. We hope you'll be able to visit next year or the year after, um, depending on how the border situation goes. <laughs> everything everything <laughs> travel-related is sort of hanging up in the air at the moment, but certainly we'd love to um, meet with you in person and um, chat for... Perfect. It was, a ple- it was a pleasure to meet you guys. You too. Um, we usually end every episode with a recommendation from every single host. It can okay. be fountain pen-related. It doesn't have to be fountain pen-related. Um, Ryan, would you have a recommendation for us? Uh, I guess I'll... Yeah, I'll start. Um, or Tad, if I you... Think... <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> We kind of sprung it on you, Ryan. I mean, we we yeah, might give you a... maybe maybe you, I'll, you I'll go, go first, Tav, and give me give me a second. I'll go, to think. I'll go first. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my recommendation is because um, uh, I'm a big coffee fiend. I um and, and at my work we've got a little coffee pod machine, and I I also can't stand throwing stuff out. So I've started using uh, stainless steel coffee pods. Um, I, I I would I would strongly suggest people try out one of those stainless steel ones because they are they're really good you can get you can choose your own coffee uh, i won't recommend a particular brand so it doesn't sound like i'm advertising but um there are some really good brands out there that that give you probably better quality coffee than any nest nest no no um nespresso, nespresso. Uh, and they can, yeah nespresso uh, and they can they fit pretty much every machine um and it's, it's kind of satisfying as well to like you know tap your own coffee and and make it 
rather than just popping a pod into the machine. How about you, Ryan? What's your recommendation? So my, mine is, I guess, maybe maybe fountain pen related, but maybe a little bit of a broader picture. Um, and it's just a, an emphasis and a recommendation to maybe uh, think think about the types of people you buy from and think intelligently about that. Um, you know, we have, a, a, I think, a changing landscape for, for all of us in, in how commerce is done and online is becoming where the majority of the stuff is done. But I think don't, my recommendation is really don't always buy on price. Um, buy for a company that you believe in. Um, and that's not necessarily about Esterbrook, but retailers that you believe in. If you like going to a pen shop and you like walking to a brick and mortar shop, support that shop. Um, if you like the, the owner of a shop and he does something and you watch all of his videos all the time, like I know Yoast and Apple Bloom does like a tremendous amount of videos and all sorts of uh, interesting content, support those shops and really, really think intelligently about where you buy from, who you spend your money with and what you spend it on. Well, my recommendation has nothing to do with that. It's completely out of the box. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and um, I think recently because Corona has disrupted a lot of recording schedules, what you see is a lot of cross movement between different channels. So sometimes if um, a podcast card produced an episode, they will... Um, air something from a sister channel or something like that. And um, what the one of the New York Times podcasts has been doing on the weekends rather than releasing, I think, one of their um, today episodes is that they've been doing, doing audiobooks. So they've been working with Audible and um, posting a audiobook of a long-form article from years previously. And one of those episodes that I really, really enjoyed recently. I think it's called David's Ankles. <laughs> um, and it's a article that was written by Sam Sanderson, Sam Anderson, and I think in 2016 or so. Um, it's about the very, very famous statue, Michelangelo, um, Michelangelo's David, and how it has these fishes in its knees and its ankles. And um, the prospect that one day there will be an earthquake in Florence and Michelangelo's famous David will tilt and suddenly <laughs> fall and explode under the weight of its own marbleness. Um, it, it's a great article, but sometimes we don't have time to read very long articles these days. So Eduardo Ballerini, who is an audiobook reader that I really enjoy, he has this great voice that sounds like coffees and cream um, and he pronounces the Italian names like an Italian speaking native so he's a perfect <laughs> reader for this article and um, I think everyone will really enjoy it because it's written well it's read very well it's the perfect length for like a 20 minute walk or a run go and listen to David's ankles <laughs> that's my recommendation let me write that down David's ankles so thank you so much Ryan thank you for being on the podcast and um, for spending an hour and a half with us we really enjoyed it. Same for me. So that was our interview with Ryan Siriano of Kenner Industries. Ryan was generous enough to send us each a pen of our choosing with our preferred nib um, so that we could try out some Estabrooks. Um, as we mentioned in the interview, I believe Estabrooks are not widely available in brick and mortar stores in Australia. Pop addiction stock them in Australia. But they're um, not a brick and mortar, are they? No, they're not. Yeah. They're no longer brick and mortar. How are their prices on Pulp Addiction? I think about the same as mm -hmm. US. Their, their recommended retail prices, unless they've got them yeah, on sale or something. Yeah, 
mm. comparable to the US pricing, not over the top. Tab, you asked to try the JR, which is the J Reborn or J Revival pocket pen um, with the bold nib. Yep, it's a, yeah. So I got it in, I can't remember the name of the colour, but it's a dark blue, like a navy blue. Capri. Capri blue. Um, it's so unusual because Capri Blue in other pen manufacturers um, like Leonardo, um, Capri Blue is like a bright turquoisey blue. It's so weird. But, yeah, so it's this it's this gorgeous blue marbled dark deep um, colour with this this uh, lovely chatoyance, like this pearlescence to it. And it's got this these layers to the colour. It's a gorgeous resin, whichever they've used. Uh, I really, really like the colour. It's it's definitely uh, something I would get for somebody as a present based on looks alone. It actually also came in, I think all the other ones came in this box too, but it's really lovely, uh, like a, a red fabric lined box. Like, well, the outside of the box is this red fabric and it looks really cool. It kind of has that slight, what do you call it, that that slight older older school look to it still. Somehow it has this old school look to it. Oh, it just says established 1858. There you go. Okay. Has been running since 1858. Yeah, and it comes, it, and the inside is a sort of a, a, a faux suede inner, um, quite a nice box with a magnetic closure. So that presentation-wise, love it. Um, the design, the physical design of the pen is really nice. I know some people might not like its uh, relatively large cap. The cap is quite wide. It's kind of um, a lot wider than the barrel. But... Personally, I don't mind it. I, I think it's it's it pays enough homage to the original the original Esther Brooks, whilst still maintaining a, an identity of its own. You know, it keeps the same clip design, which is really nice. But they've also lengthened it, which makes it a lot more useful. And another thing they've added uh, the rig the original Esther Brooks had like a black plastic. I don't even know if I could call it a, a, a jewel, but on their cap on the end of the cap. And on the end of the barrel, there are these black plastic things. Um, and instead, Estabrook has replaced it with a gold-plated Estabrook logo, which is kind of like a four-leaf, looks like a four-leaf clover or something, or a or a, an X. And um, on the back, it has this big, thick gold-plated finial. And I actually really like that. It just looks very distinguished. It's a very handsome pen, you know, um, it's it's big enough, I believe, for a person with big hands to use it because when you post it, it becomes uh, pretty long. Uh, but if you don't want to post it, it would be great for someone with small hands either. It doesn't look like it's particularly gendered. You know, it's a unisex pen, you know, if, if, it's, if that's important to people. It absolutely is not to me. But, yeah, the design is fantastic. The, the section has a lovely little tape, uh, little waist to it, so it prevents your fingers from slipping. The pen feels really nice and substantial because I think there's a bit of brass inside the barrel. And, yeah, so that's that's looks, um, unfortunately. Before, oh, okay, b- before we get into the unfortunately, Sharon, which pen did you try? So we were asked which pen we'd like to try, and this particular question actually came, I think, the day right after I spoke with Kelly at Mountain of Ink, who told me that she was eyeing the Estabrook Esty Sparkle and the Esty Maraschino. So she said that she actually owned 
uh, an SD already and she thought it was a great pen and uh, she was eyeing the new resin colours. So coming high off that particular discussion, I went and asked for a SD sparkle in the tanzanite finish to try out. This is and the oversized SD. The oversized SD. So the Sparkle range is a limited edition range. Um, it comes in three colours, in the Garnet, uh, which is a bright red, the Tanzanite, which is a royal blue. It's like very much a sapphire blue. I'd probably call this a sapphire blue rather than a royal blue. There's not much purple in this. And also in the uh, Montana sapphire. And that one is a greenish teal with larger sparkly bits to it, um, very much up my alley. And I got mine with an extra fine nib because, as you guys all know, I am uh, a great lover of uh, fine and extra fine nibs, usually extra fine in European pens. So looks-wise, the pen looks great. I will give it huge kudos for that. And I echo Tav's uh, comments earlier around the packaging. I'm really impressed by the packaging. And with the actual pen itself, um, I think Tav was the one who actually mentioned this. And I do agree. And I wish, um, uh, Di, you'd actually taken a photo of this. But it reminds me, um, or it reminds both of us, of the Sailor King of Pen. It's got the Sailor King of Pen feel to it. It's a mm -hmm. cigar shape. It's quite a big pen, but it's um, because it's all resin and it's got no metal bits in it, aside from a couple of the threads, it's not a very heavy pen. Uh, I think it's about 30 grams weight-wise. So it's heavier than, say, like a Pelican M600, but significantly lighter than um, a Pelican M800. The material, I did some reading about it, and the ESTE actually, they got the material from a, a resin maker in North Carolina whose name just currently escapes me. I put it in the show notes. Um, let me get it up. Ryan actually mentioned it in the interview. The maker of the uh, the Diamond Dust, is it, what, is it called Diamond Dust? Diamond cast resin is yes. Mackenzie Penworks. So it's um, the guy ah, who go. makes yes. from Mackenzie Penworks. Um, and so this is made with like diamond shavings or uh, diamond bits to it. So it does, it does really sparkle. Um, and every facet of it is a little bit different. Uh, it's quite comfortable to hold. The metal threads are going to annoy some people. And the fact that there's quite a significant step down from the large barrel to the actual grip section, um, that's also going to annoy some people. For me, it's not so much of an issue. And even the pen itself, despite it being quite large, a lot of the length is actually in the cap itself. So when you uncap it, it's a little bit longer than a Sailor Pro Gear Rialo. It's about the same size as a DuPont uh, Olympio, and it's also about the same size as a Pelican M800, uncapped. Before we go into the writing experience, I'm just going to talk briefly about my pen. Like I said, it's the Camden Composition in the back in school black. It only comes in two colours. Uh, there is a green, like an extremely neon green. Neon green. <laughs> Maybe I, I should have asked for that one. It's certainly a very eye-catching colour. I don't think many pens are available in that sort of very neon green colour. 
But if you are a fan of composition notebooks, the black and white speckled finish, I think that's probably the one that comes first to mind when you think of composition notebooks. Uh, It's quite a heavy pen. It's quite a large pen, but I find it to be extremely well balanced when you write with it. The section is resin. It's not too wide. Uh, The body itself is made of anodized aluminium. It's actually much heavier than I expected of just a pure aluminium pen. Some of that weight might be down to the capping mechanism, um, what they call the cushion cap mechanism, where you can cap and uncap the pen with a slight push and a three-quarter rotation. Sharon, you meant, I think you said to yes. me earlier that it reminds you a little bit of Visconti's, um, what's it called? Cap and lock? Hook and lock. Hook and system, yeah. <laughs> yep. So the SD Sparkle also comes with this same cushion mechanism. I hate it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be completely upfront. And I say that this mechanism I think is unnecessary and it is extremely prone to breaking um, given my experiences with Visconti, I have had two of these caps break on me. And like when I say break, it's not that it just doesn't work anymore. And I think it's going to be less of an issue with this because it is screw with the cushion cap. But um, all of these inner caps are glued in. And so if the glue loosens, which is what it's been known to do, you'll end up in a situation where that cushion no longer retracts and the inner cap effectively falls out. With a Visconti, it's fatal because once you latch on to that hook latch system and your inner cap partially falls out, you can't get it apart, right? I have a broken Da Vinci to as an example of that. But um, with this mechanism, I think it's extremely unnecessary. Like from my perspective, I think it's very unnecessary. I don't like the fact that I have to push Instead of just screwing my pen close, I have to push. It's like a child lock on a pharmacy bottle, right? On a pill bottle. (laughs) On a pill bottle. Oh, my gosh. But you have to turn and push at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, I struggle with those as well. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, it is like a childproof lock, isn't it? Thanks (laughs) for the assessment that I am a child. But, yes, I hate it. I hate it. Okay. But to be clear, you haven't actually experienced any breakage or issues with the mechanism itself you're just haunted by bad experience okay well not just that I just don't like the feel of the mechanism I think Mm. it's unnecessary that's my biggest point of this the cushion cap was designed to seal the nib to ensure that once you uncap the pen it still wrote I think it's completely unnecessary I much prefer the slip seal cap that the platinum pens have without this like gimmicky mechanism because my big fear about Uh, using this particular cap is that if I don't put the nib straight into the center and press correctly, I'm going to bend this nib because I can't just close the pen. I can't just twist the pen pen cap close. It's not very instinctive. I do have to Mm. think, be careful, make sure you shove the nib right down the center. You're not touching anything else on the side, press in, then twist. No. Okay. Well, um, I also found it not very instinctual to use to begin with. And the feeling of the the cushion, the slight resistance when you press down, that was really surprising and hard for me to get used to at the beginning. But 
um, after using it for a few days, I came to really like it um, because I don't like constantly having to rotate the cap multiple times to get a good seal on a threaded cap. It just annoys the stuffing out of me. Um, and anything that, you know, helps me to cap a threaded cap quickly and uncap it quickly whilst allowing the nib to be securely sealed off uh, from the air around it. I think that's a good, that's my preference um, and what I like to see in a cap. And I found it very easy to use. Um, I can cap and uncap it with one hand if I have to, but most of the time I do it with two. Maybe it's because I haven't had that past bad experience with these sorts of, I don't feel any like anxiety when I'm capping it. It's pretty hard to get it in to the cap in the wrong angle, I find. I don't know. I, be, I just don't have the same issues. It might be a different design. It might be a different design because I think you said that yours caps in less than a whole turn, right? Or, yes. Yeah. So mine caps in one and a half turns with this mechanism. Oh. So the the SD, um, I did just test it out. Yeah. So I have to press down and then turn one and a half times to actually get it closed. So it's no longer as easy to uncap and cap as yours. It's easy to uncap, but to cap, I have to turn it one and a half times. So there it is. Mm-hmm. I have to turn once mm. and then half, one and a half times oh, to close. That is different. I only have to, yeah. so if I put it in, the cap goes like less than one turn around uh, before yeah. it's, it's firmly sealed. Okay, so I, that makes sense then. If you have to turn it more, there's just no point then to having um, such a mechanism if you have to do the same number of turns as you would on a normal normal cap. So here we come to our main disagreements. Well, not disagreements, but our main differences of experience. And from previous discussions, I believe it's mostly down to the nibs. So maybe we should start with Tav. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, first of all, the, um, I think all of them use Yovo nibs. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is a number five Yovo nib in broad steel nib. For the price that this pen is worth, uh, I guess it's probably at the upper bound of what you'd expect. I think it's 175 US. It's at the upper bound of what you'd expect to have a number five steel nib. But I guess that's all right. I mean, Yovo nibs tend to be quite good. Unfortunately, uh, this one is quite scratchy and it's not due to misalignment. The tines were actually quite well aligned. Uh, there was a good gap between them. So I was very surprised when I inked it up uh, with Sailor Ink. It, uh, it wrote very dry and very scratchy. Uh, it feels like almost gritty to write with. Dry and gritty is the feeling I get from it. Mm. and insipid. The, the ink flow is very, very dry. And as I said, there's a nice gap between the tines, which means it is something wrong with the feed. And I have come across bad uh, dud Yovo feeds before, but it's a bit disappointing to see one of them on such an expensive pen. Mm. So I guess one of the kinks they can be working out is their QA. Because to be honest, uh, if I had bought this pen for myself and received it like this i wouldn't even get it repaired i would send it straight back and ask for a refund because it it, it kind of 
I, I have done this before. There have been times where I would uh, purchase a pen that's pretty pricey and, and it just writes so not as it should that I don't even want a good one. So the feed and the nib were definitely, unfortunately, quite disappointing. Uh, and another issue, um, in fact, more so of an issue, is the fact that I put the pen down after being a bit disappointed. I think I inked it up on Sunday and then on Wednesday, I picked it up again, uncapped it, and it wouldn't write. The entire mm. feed had completely dried out, which meant I had to dip it in water in order to uh, get it going again, which, as I said, was quite a disappointment. I, I tried flushing it with a bit of dish detergent. I tried flushing it with water, of course, and I've tried different inks and each one of them, it's the exact same issue. So unfortunately, mm. it's uh, a disappointing as Simon Cowell would say, <laughs> yeah, as Simon Cowell would say, it's a no from me. Mm. So. Sharon, how about you? So I had very similar experiences with Tab when I first inked my pen. And so I also have a Yovo nib. Mine's a size six on the SD oversize. One, I hate the fact that it comes with a steel nib at 395 USD for this particular Mm. pen. Um, So that's 550 Aussie, maybe a little bit over depending on the exchange rate. 549 from Pulp Addiction. That's a lot of money to be forking out for a steel nib. I would not fork out that amount of money for a steel nib. And maybe that's just, well, it is because I am a gold nib snob and I gladly admit it. But overall, I do find writing with a gold nib to be a much more enjoyable experience. I went into this with a very open mind. When I first inked it, and I inked it with Waterman uh, Serenity Blue, Old Faithful, it usually works for pretty much any pen. Um, I remember back in the day when uh, Richard Binder um, actually wrote an article about whenever he repaired pens, the ink he would test with was Waterman Florida Blue or Serenity Blue. And so um, it's my, kind of my go-to testing ink. When I first wrote with this, it was a horrific experience. It was very dry, so the flow was not good. It was uncomfortable to write with because it was so dry and mind you I got an extra fine nib and because I got an extra fine nib yeah extra fine nibs are known to be finicky but um, it writes a true extra fine line it is more fine than most other extra fines you get in European pens so it writes true to size but it felt not scratchy but it felt uncomfortable. It felt like it wasn't smoothed out. And it felt like a subpar Pilot Kakuno fine nib. That's what I think that's probably my um, first reaction from it. And it was a very stiff nib. So there's almost no give in it. It didn't write like a typical Yovo nib. Uh, I own a couple of Yovo extra fines and I quite like them, actually. I, I own them in Franklin Christoph's. And um, I've had them in, I think, Twisby's as well. The Twisby VAC 700 uh, uses a size 6 Yovo nib. So I was very surprised by this. And uh, I think on the day that I inked it up, I sent a message to <laughs> to both Dai and Tav and I said, I hate this nib. This nib is awful. I don't know what I'm going to say. And, and I realise I'm using a lot of strong words. I'm using the word hate a lot. 
I don't hate this pen now. So what I ended up doing was I wrote for about a day with this particular pen and I wrote through a whole cartridge of ink, a cartridge converter, like basically a cartridge worth of ink was about half a convertible and I didn't like it. So I put it away and I said, I'm just not going to use it for probably a day or two. And then I came back to it um, about two days later, uh, uncapped the pen, tried it again, and unlike Tav's experience, it wrote, it wrote fine. During the two days, I had it lying horizontal on my desk, and what I'd noticed was that the ink had saturated the feed completely during that period of time, like oversaturated the feed, and that really did help the flow a lot, and I gave this pen another shot. I found that it wasn't as dry. It's not a it's not a wet pen by any stretch of the means, but it wasn't as super dry. So the feed took about two days to fully saturate. I look I checked in on it on day one. I think I scribbled one thing and I said, no, I'm not gonna not gonna try it today. But then by day two, yeah, it was fully saturated and it wrote better. What I actually did was I changed the angle that I normally write. I normally write at quite a low angle and with the nib turned towards the left. So the top of the nib slightly angled towards the left. I changed the way that I held this particular pen. I rotated the nib so that it was basically um, perpendicular, perpendicular, or basically facing facing the um, paper so that there was no angle to the nib. And I wrote with a slightly higher angle and <laughs> in amongst a lot of testing, I found that there is a sweet spot on this particular nib. And once you can find that sweet spot and you know how to hold the pen to find that exact perfect sweet spot, it writes great. So after uh, about four days of testing this particular pen, and I was using it as a daily writer, um, I got to quite like this pen. I, I really did. But it is quite finicky. It is very quite, very much quite finicky because you've got to find that perfect angle, mm. the perfect position to hold the pen. And if you deviate even like the slightest bit from it, it's a pretty ugh experience. Mm. But now that I know where its sweet spot is and how to write with it, I've been writing with it almost nonstop for the last two days. And I really enjoy it now, which is not what I expected to be saying on this particular review had you asked me four days ago. Um, I really quite enjoy this particular nib. It's one that has grown on me. So the nib itself, because it is a true extra fine, it writes remarkably well for an extra fine and so long as you've got that perfect sweet spot and the feed is completely saturated through. I haven't tinkered with this particular nib yet, but I may after this cartridge runs out. I may actually tinker with this nib a little bit because I think I can get it to flow a, a bit better. It's not scratchy. It is not scratchy at all. It just needs a wetter flow for it to, to kind of compromise for some of the um, feedback that you get. I also did try it on multiple different types of paper. So do not use this pen on Midori paper. I was very disappointed. It was awful experience. Midori paper is quite textured. This doesn't work. This needs super, super, super smooth paper and a very, very light touch. So you have to basically write with this pen with no pressure on rhodia paper 
or on what, what am I using now? Life paper, um, not as good as Rhodia, but works great on Rhodia, works all right on Life, works pretty well on uh, Tomoya River, but basically no pressure. Can't use any pressure on it whatsoever. But I have grown to really, really enjoy this uh, nib because once you find that perfect spot, it just writes and writes and writes. It doesn't cut out at all. The ink comes out as a very even tone. So it's not like a lot of pens where you write really fast and by the end of a really long paragraph, your ink is quite uh, light because the feed's drying out. The feed in this does keep up despite it being a relatively drier feed. I surprisingly quite enjoy this pen. And plus it's very comfortable to write for long periods with because it is just entirely resin and it is quite light. So Sharon, with the oversized SD Sparkle, um, out of 10, what would you give that nib in terms of... The nib or the pen? Uh, The nib first and then the pen overall. The nib, I would give it a... I'd give it a seven. Mm -hmm. I'd give it a seven, um, maybe seven and a half. And part of it is just, it is a very expensive pen. It really Mm -hmm. is. It's a very expensive pen and that always comes, like the heftier the price tag, the higher the expectation. And I think this is a beautiful pen. I really like the pen, you know, despite all my qualms with it. I don't like the cap. My nib had issues, but I really do like this pen. So overall, what would you give the pen itself out of 10? I would give the pen probably an eight or an eight and a half. I would rate it relatively high. I quite like it. But having said that, you know, I think I showed you this earlier um, in, a, in a photo, right? Here are three pens. So this is the SD. This is a special edition Sailor Rialo. And this is a DuPont Olympio. These three pens are about the same price, right? They're all about the same price. They're all mm. about 550 AUD. I would buy either of these two pens over the SD. I would uh, buy the Sailor or the DuPont over the actual SD Sparkle. Not because I don't think that's a great pen. I think it's not well-priced and I don't think it's good value. But it is beautiful. And had I gotten a better nib, maybe I would have revisited this. Uh, I think after this... Um, after I'm done writing through this particular cartridge, I'm going to switch out the nib. I'm going to put in a different nib and then we'll see. So the material is probably the thing you like most about it. I love the material. Yeah. I really, really love the material. Mm. Tav, how about you? Before I start talking about my pen, what would you rate the nib out of 10 and what would you rate the pen itself? Well, I was just going to, I was going to chime in and say, I was actually really jealous that Sharon got that one because I really like it. <laughs> Um, it is a gorgeous look. I really, really like it. Um, how would I rate the nib? I mean, given that the feed and the nib are sort of one thing, I mean, uh, yeah. if, if, if the feed was fine, I guess the nib would be fine. Yeah. It would be all right. Um, well, I mean, it would be rough, but it would be easily smoothed by me. I don't know. I... I, I <laughs> I would probably get this pen as in like I would receive it in the mail with a note saying, hey, please fix this pen for me. Please smooth it out. <sighs> yeah. So the nib is actually scratchy. Yeah, the nib is rough. Um, okay. It feels like it's not been polished. 
It okay. needs. I deliberately didn't do anything to mm-hmm. it. Um, my my, I, I had an itch to start tweaking it and doing all sorts of things and pull the whole thing in a, apart. With this nib, I'd probably give it a. With the feed, I'd give it a two. Mm-hmm. It's thoroughly unenjoyable, unfortunately. It's got everything that you don't want, except for maybe uh, baby's bottom. It, it doesn't skip. The pen without the nib, in terms of aesthetics, the feel, the looks, um, the design, oh, gosh, I'd give it an eight and a half. I love the look. It's a beautiful pen. The price is a bit high, I mm-hmm. think, but I would look at it maybe as a gift. Or for myself, if it had like a gold nib, I'd look at it for myself. But you know, it would it it looks beautiful. It's a great design. Yeah, that's a shame. With the nib overall, I'd give the pen a I don't know, maybe a five, four, maybe four and a half. It's just such a shame that it doesn't write like mm. a you know a three hundred dollar pen. Really, if I if I went and bought myself a three hundred dollar sailor, I mean that that's pretty much guaranteed it'd write. But this one doesn't well. No, it doesn't write well at all. Uh, so it was quite uneven. Your experience, um, the nib versus the pen itself. Yeah. I have to say, my experience of the Camden composition. I was the first to because the package came to my PO box. So I was the first to get to try uh, the pen that I requested to try out, which was the Camden and. I had such a great experience with it. I was really excited to hand off the other two pens to Sharon and Tav um, because my, especially the nib on the Camden was really enjoyable. Um, I would say looking at the price point, it is quite expensive for a still nibbed pen. Um, I think both Sharon and Tav commented on that too. So the Camden composition is USD 195 and Pulp Addiction has it on sale for $309.95 Australian. But if you don't look at the price, the writing experience that I got on this pen is great. It is a very firm steel nib. Um, Mine is actually marked Schmidt. So it's a Yovo nib that's been worked on by Schmidt. It's a size six nib like Sharon's, but mine is a fine. So fine nibs and medium nibs tend to be more regular and consistent by most pen makers. And they tend to be the ones with the least issues, which is why I really wanted to uh, try a fine just to get sort of a mid-range common nib to try since the other two went for the two extremes, the B and the EF. My fine nib works great. It doesn't write very wet, but the flow is consistent and it writes very evenly. It doesn't dry out, even if I haven't written with it for a few days. I tested it against a couple of um, similarly widthed Japanese nibs. So I tried it against a Waverly nib from Pilot, a Pilot size 15 fine nib, and also a Sailor hard MF nib. And in terms of width, it's pretty similar to a Pilot Fine. The feel of it, the texture and the quality of the feedback reminds me a little bit of a Sailor Nib, but it's much firmer and um, you get more resistance and a lot less bounce than you do with a Gold Nib. That aside, it writes like an extremely good quality steel nib. And I've just been really enjoying writing with it for the last couple of weeks. I've tried it on all sorts of papers, including 
Midori MD on different grades of Tomoe River. I've tried it on cartridge paper, like copy paper. I've tried it on my regular everyday uh, notebooks, which is the Oxford notebooks that I just get from Officeworks for $7 each. And they work great on all sorts of papers. The nib does exactly what I want it to do. It's not sensitive to rotations at all. I've written at it from all angles, high and low, you know, slightly rotating to uh, left and right. And it writes the same. Um, it's very, very consistent. And I think it would be a great nib, you know, for someone who is just trying out their first fountain pen because it's just so reliable. I've used both the cartridge and I've used current dash inks. It's the same experience. If you like this sort of design, it's very well made. It feels sturdy and like really comfortable in the hand. I would give the nib itself for a steel nib. I'd give it like nine, 9.5, no issues. And the pen itself, like an eight, eight and a half. <laughs> it very much isn't in line with the the designs you'd expect out of Estabrook. I think I think my my pen is the only one that really resembles any existing or sorry, any any vintage Estabrooks at the time. Um, I've got to say I, I don't think this is the norm for Estabrook pens mm-hmm. uh, because if they use Yovo nibs, Yovo nibs are very good. Yovo nibs are usually you know nine times out of ten, Yovo nibs are fantastic. I think Yovo nibs are better than Bok nibs. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, I've found that Yovo nibs are consistently less problematic than Bok nibs. This is a blip. I I think mine is, it it might be a lemon, but it's not not what it's meant to be because Yovo nibs should be better than this. And Tab, you actually wrote to Ryan. um, I wrote to him and he was dumbfounded. Um, Mm. He was very apologetic and... You know, he 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 seems very embarrassed by it, and and I, I didn't I didn't like I really wanted to like this pen. I took it out of the box and thought, oh my gosh, this is gorgeous. Um, but yeah, uh, he was very apologetic, and I guess you know this is some feedback, so they can work on their you know on their testing. They can have a, a dedicated team of pen testers or something like that, like most other big pen manufacturers do. I think the the reason that we are quite we're quite picky about the way our nibs write is we've had episodes before about QC and about how nibs often come out of the box, not writing as expected or even writing at all. And I think this is something that some people think is beyond a manufacturer's ability to control. But like, I think just between the three of us, we think that a pen out of the box should write and it should write pleasantly um, yeah. without us Absolutely. having to do something to it. And maybe that's too high of a bar um, for modern day manufacturing, but, you know, that's my expectation. And some companies are able to achieve that um, more than others. And so it's always a little bit disappointing when a company is unable to produce nibs that are good consistently especially when you're in in competition with um you know like the japanese companies who do produce very consistent nibs if i had dropped you know two three hundred dollars on this pen i would be sending it right back and going Mm. sorry i want my money back that's kind of where my hesitation with this pen comes in the pen as i said it's beautiful and mine mine writes now quite well it is not a beginner's pen 
this is not a pen where you can take out of the box, write with it and go, oh, hey, I like fountain pens or, you know, it writes great. This is not one of those pens. It takes adapting. It takes me adapting to the pen rather than the pen adapting to me. And I expect that if I am paying $550 Aussie mm-hmm. for a pen that out of the box I'm going to write with it and go, oh, okay, <laughs> be still my beating heart. But to put it in perspective, right, what I've been comparing this pen to have been Franklin Christophs because Franklin Christophs also use a diamond cast resin. I have Franklin Christophs in the diamond cast resin. And the two are quite comparable. I mean, you can get Franklin Christophs in the diamond cast resin. They're special edition, so you do have to get into the stock room. They range at about 175 USD. So that's what, 260 Aussie mm-hmm. with a size 6 Yovo nib. That is a direct comparison to the Esther book. Similar material, or well, if not the same material, American made with this basically the same nib i've not had an issue with franklin christoph and i haven't had to give it any leeway either because the price point is just right yeah and i've had i've ordered several ef nibs from franklin christoph also in the number six yovo and they are always great they they definitely always check all their nibs and their efs are very consistent i own just one franklin christoph and oh no sorry i own two my apologies i own two but the first one I bought, I just asked, you know, can you just make sure there's no baby bottom? Yep, we always check for that. And I got it perfectly tuned, perfectly smoothed. Mm. It was just beautiful. I think this was one of the ones that uh, the late and great Jim Rouse uh, worked on mm. uh, to check it out. Yeah. Um, I think Estabrook has the idea of being a bit bigger of it yeah. rather than the, sort of the, the they're sort of, um, they're like a, you know, a brewer, like a big brewery, like at like two E's or something, as opposed to the craft brewery, the microbrewery that is mm-hmm. um, that is Franklin Christoph. But still, another thing I would I would find a bit eh, about this the, the pen I've been comparing it to. I've been comparing it to two pens. One of them was my vintage Estabrook, right, mm-hmm. which still writes beautifully after I don't know 50, 60 years, maybe, maybe even more. And also, I've been comparing it to my Twisby which is a fraction of the price, also made in Taiwan, I think. Is it Taiwan or? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Twisby's Taiwan. So, so as, as explained in the interview, um, Esther Brooks are made in Taiwan. And so for that price, I would expect some pretty top-notch uh, stuff. Yeah. I think we keep coming back to price. And Ryan also mentioned that, that so their pens are priced a little bit higher than Franklin Christoph but they're also producing at greater volumes, right? Um, and they're more widely available. So Doesn't I that think lower the price. That's that would be my expectation yeah. as well. <laughs> so our expectations here. So that's what surprised me, um, and I think that's what's confounding a lot of us with their decisions in terms of the price point. It's a little bit confounding. I think if they priced it, you know, maybe. lower, um, our expectations would not be so stringent and we wouldn't be as critical. But when you're pricing yourself higher than Franklin Christoph, higher than a lot of niche makers who do much better nib quality control, 
you're, you know, you're playing with the big guns, like mm. um, the lower end pelicans. It's not even lower end. Like in the case of mine, like I said, the actual direct comparison is a special edition Sailor Rialo. Which is gold nib. 21K gold nib. Yeah. And this pen is fantastic. Mm. Like the Sailor, the Sailor Rialo is fantastic. The nib size, I mean, is relatively comparable. Like the two are kind of the same. But the Sailor writes so beautifully and has so much more character and life to it, which is kind of what you would expect at that price range. I mean, if you want sparkles, the Sailor is sparkly. So my question um, to the two of you is, I think then that Estabrook, where they've positioned themselves is that they think they can capitalise on first the brand name and also the uniqueness of their designs. And I mean, do you think the designs themselves are unique enough to stand up to other similarly priced pens that are available both, you know, online and also in brick and mortar stores in Australia? So I will say with the SD Sparkle, for $550 Aussie or $395 USD, for me to fork that amount of money for this particular pen, it would need to have a gold nib and it would need to take take out that cushion cap. And the Back to the cushion tag. (laughs) But if you made those two changes, I would buy this pen. Mm. If you gave it a Mm. gold nib and you took out that stupid mechanism, I'm sorry. Like, Uh, sorry to everyone who likes it. Yeah, I was going to say, it does sound like it's a thing that some people will like and some people will Mm. hate, you know? Well, okay. So my personal opinion, if I'm allowed to have one, (laughs) Yes. No, you're not. (laughs) I want... I want a size 6, 14 or 18 carat Yovo nib mm. on this, mm-hmm. which I know those write beautifully. Um, I've never had an issue with a gold Yovo nib. If you changed it to that and then you took out the inner cap and ideally reduced the price to like 350 USD, I would buy it. I'd, I would actually just take my money. Mm. Mm-hmm. In its current state, no, I would not buy it. I cannot justify it when I think for the exact same amount of money, I could get a special edition Sailor Rialo. That's my comparison, right? Mm. And that's not to, that's not even to bring in the DuPont. I can buy DuPont at this price range. I can actually buy a Pelican M800, just one of the regular ones at that price range. Mm. So I, I struggle with that. But having said that, I, I do like the aesthetic of the pen. I think it's a very, very good-looking pen, and I think it's very classic, the one that I got. Um, I have nothing negative to say about the look of it. I mean, I like the clip. It's very simple. It's it's a good pen. Just don't like the price tag for what you get. <laughs> How about you, Tav? Uh, this actually does give me some Bexley vibes, uh, which is unfortunately a non-existent company anymore, I believe. But it's giving me some vibes of those of, of the companies like Bexley, which made pens in volume, but it also made them quite affordably and with really nice materials. Um, I own a number of them. They're probably one of my favourite brands. That being said, though, this particular price, I think it was, was it 175 US? 175 US, yes. On Pulp Addiction, it's about 220, 219.95 mm-hmm. Australian dollars. Okay. If it had a gold nib, I would definitely consider it mm-hmm. um, for 219 Australian. But with a steel nib, no. 
I'm afraid not. Uh, if this was a, uh, maybe a $100 pen, oh, gosh, give me two. Um, I'd, I'd buy them as presents for everyone. They, that's, mm. it's, it, you know, it feels like a, uh, you know, if, if it had a, one of those gorgeous Bexley two-tone nibs, that would be a beautiful pen and I would gladly fork out $200 for that, $220. And I have done so with several of my Bexley pens. But this one just, mm. it would either have to be, have a gold nib and have that that sort of that that venerable Bexley lifetime guarantee, which I know they honour because I've I've used it. Or it would have to be significantly cheaper. As and as I said, if this was a hundred dollars, I would buy I would be buying buying them as gifts for people, and I would then just fix it up myself somehow, buy some replacement feeds, and and put them in if I got a dud one. You know. Well, um, the Camden composition that I got, I think it's definitely unique enough to stand out in the market. Um, and certainly if you recognize the patterning, it's very recognizable. It definitely stands out. But like the two of you, I also stick at the price point. So 195 USD. We keep coming back to the price point. Like it's it doesn't perform consistently or well enough for us to use personally and for gifting, it's too expensive. Another thing I think that, that, that for me as a, a vintage enthusiast as well as a modern pen enthusiast, Estabrooks were known to be very affordable pens. That's mm. the point. And it seems a bit strange that they're now trying to make themselves into a really exclusive uh, luxury pen that, that costs hundreds of dollars when, like I said earlier, these were the equivalents of Twisbees and Lamies back in the day. So... What I'm gathering from all of this and our recommendation out of all of this is come Black Friday, make sure you get your discount code on Mm -hmm. and go buy yourself one of these because they're not a bad pen and there are a lot of pros about it if you don't hate the cushion cap. (laughs) Um, It's just you do need a bit of a discount voucher to kind of swallow the price Mm. and make it worthwhile. Is so, that right? Is it a good yeah, summary? <laughs> it, it's a good summary. Good last thoughts. So would you consider the revival of Estabrook the second attempt to be more successful than the first? Or are they Absolutely. still working some kinks out? No, I think it's way better than the first. The first was kind of like a blip and those pens didn't work very well, if I recall correctly. These pens work. I mean, there are a lot of things to love about them, as you know we've said. I think they've got some kinks to work out, but I think it's a much better revival than the first. Yeah. I think they've got some vision in their revival. You know, they've got they've got the classic, um, the not vintage, but kind of like the revival uh, models. They've got the newer collaborations with the unique material makers. You know, these are all things to celebrate. I think they've just got a couple of kinks to work out on the performance of nibs at the extreme ends. And, you know, Tav and I are really at the extreme ends of what most people would like from nibs. Um, And at those extreme ends is where you see a lot of flaws in most mass manufactured nibs that haven't been adjusted. So, um, you know, they've got a bit of work to do on the consistency uh, of their nibs. But overall, I think they're in the right direction. And if they can get, you know, uh, economies of scale, then uh, I hope the price will come down at some point and they continue to do interesting things. Meanwhile, you can always just swap out the nib in your oversized 
SD sparkle and just fit it with like an EF Franklin, Franklin Christoph. Christoph. <laughs> exactly yeah. what I'm going to do after yeah. this. <laughs> so I think that's a good thing to end on. Like keep an eye out for discount vouchers. Maybe stay away from the extra fine and bold nibs if you are not willing to, you know, put a bit of work into it perhaps. Um, keep to fine and mediums. Those would be our advice um, approaching Estabrook. But if you love the design of a pen, they're certainly very unique looking pens. Go for it when you have a voucher. So thank you, Ryan, for reaching out to us and for giving us such a frank and informative interview. Thank you for sending us the pens for us to try out. So thank you, Ryan, for um, helping us to acquaint ourselves with Estabrook. We try to give our fair and informed review, and I hope that's helpful to our listeners. Keep an eye out for Estabrooks when they become more widely available in stores. I think this is definitely a brand that you want to try out in person just so you can check the nibs yourself and also get the feel of the pens yourself before you purchase. We definitely recommend that you try these pens out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So thank you both, Sharon and Tav. Thank Thank you you for having us. (laughs) And thank you to our listeners. Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenipsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto Apple Podcasts, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenipsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nipsection Facebook page or at the Nipsection on Twitter and Instagram. The Nipsection is the official podcast of Found Pens Oceania. Our producers this episode were Sharon Zar, Tabit Sinanian, and Diana Dye. Recording and editing is done by Diana Dye. Special guest was Ryan Sirignano. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith, with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.